0: Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. Last year, I discovered a podcast called Writing Class Radio, where a teacher based in Miami leads a personal essay writing class and records her students reading their stories in the class. I fell in love with it, and I fell in love with the podcast immediately. I reached out to the host, Andrea Askowitz. We've been connected over the last few months, and when I launched my podcast earlier this year, she suggested I have a conversation with one of her students. So here we are. I'm really excited to speak with Aaron Curtis. To learn more about him and his invisible illness and his story and sharing it. So, welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Harper. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you live, and what you do.
1: Who I am, where I live, and what I do. <laughs> uh, well, I'm um, Aaron. Uh, my father is Scotch Irish, my mother is Mohawk Indian. I grew up in New York. I moved to Miami around about 96. I've been working at Books and Books since 2004 as one of their buyers. Mostly I do events and all the um, online ordering. I also, I write.
0: Awesome. Well, and I will say that Books and Books is one of my favorite bookstores. Whenever I go down oh, to Miami, thanks. it's one of my favorite places to go. So if people have not been there, make sure you check it out on Lincoln Road. And so Aaron, tell us a little bit about how you got into writing class and all that with Andrea. Andrea.
1: I was just starting to take my writing a little bit more seriously. I've been doing it for a while. I have had some success, mostly with nonfiction, even though uh, when I write, my heart is really in fiction. And um, I had done uh, a couple of pieces for Lip Service, which Andrea had uh, co-founded. So I always saw her, this was her new venture, the Writing Class Radio, the memoir class. And I'd seen her sharing the links on social media and just because I was I was working on the, the fiction a lot more, I thought it would be nice just, you know, cross training just to keep my skills set up and just try different things, see if it would open new avenues. And uh, it has. I really I really like the class a lot. Sometimes things come out in prompts, like they just they do two prompts every class, which is just be some random phrase or maybe a word, and then you just write out whatever it is that incites in you, like what that calls up for you. And sometimes it's stuff that you've never sat down to write about in your, you know, non-workshop, non-class environment. And one of those things was, was the illness. I had never, I'd never written about it or really, really even talked about it. I, that was the only reason she knew about it because it came out in a prompt.
0: That's so interesting. And I, I honestly think that receiving those prompts in a class setting is so valuable I'm someone that sometimes if I sit behind a computer, I could just stare at a blank space for a long Uh time or a blank blank page for a long time. And I was just in a writing workshop earlier this week Mm -hmm. and I was provided with all of these prompts and I'm going, oh my God, I would never even think to write about these topics if I wasn't given these prompts. So it's super, super valuable and especially helpful when you are dealing with a invisible illness and trying to figure out how to wrap your head around it. What do you expose? What do you share? And how do you go through with it. So I'm not even going to try to pronounce the invisible illness that you have, and I'll let you do that. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you were diagnosed with and what the journey was like to get to your diagnosis. Okay.
1: It's um, it's called cutaneous polyarteritis nodosa, um, and it's abbreviated CPAN. And um, it's rare enough that if you actually Google PAN, that, uh, or CPAN that it doesn't come up unless you type in vasculitis with it. Um, Wow.
0: That's wild. Yeah.
1: I mean, now that I've been researching it for a while, I was like, Ooh, maybe more people have it, but no, it just depends on, <laughs> depends on what computer you are. Like Google is used to my searches. So now, you know, it'll come right up. Um, but I, as far as the journey goes, I guess the most, vis- the, what happened was there was a visible outward sign, these lesions on my legs. and retroactively, there were signs of something wrong going back, you know, many years, but it wasn't until I was diagnosed that you went, Oh, okay. Well, the swelling in my legs was not just inactivity or having a desk job all day. It was actually the beginning of this. The pain in my knees wasn't residual from my car accident. It was actually the beginnings of this. So it, well, I, guess I, I my families have a bad history with doctors, so it's not something I would faithfully do was have I didn't have a family doctor but um I was reading some Carl Hyacin, and he said that uh your body rarely has any good surprises for you after the age of forty, so when I turned forty, I started going in for yearly checkups and i did I had the swelling on my legs and some discoloration from the knee down like it just it looked like I had these like seventy year old shins and feet on like my 40 year old body. It was a very strange thing. And she, and my doctor was very concerned, ran tests, but everything came back normal. So
0: Hmm.
1: yeah, she just suggested, um, you know, some diet changes. I was, uh, I was very heavy at that point. I weighed, um, 253 pounds. So she, she just, you know, suggested some changes to my diet and that I exercise and all those kind of things. And that happened for about, four years. And I would, I was gradually losing weight and getting more active and feeling better. And then one night I had what I thought was a, a bite on my leg, but it was very, very dark. Like it wasn't like any kind of scab or scar or, or cut or bite that I'd ever seen. It was just, it was pitch black. And we were going away on a trip to California for three weeks. So I just slapped a bandaid on it. Didn't think about it. And, uh, when we got back, it was uh, it was bigger. It was black and it had angry red around it. I'd never seen anything like it, so I, I took it to the doctor and uh she immediately thought that it was some kind of um what is it, MRSA, the uh mm-hmm. like a flesh-eating something. She had me seeing a dermatologist as well. And uh the only thing that was throwing them because it would it would um they would treat it with different ointments and different pills. But what was interesting for them was that it was all painless, like it itched a little. But if it was any of these, you know, like a flesh eating something or something they couldn't identify, then it would have been painful. And since it wasn't, they thought it might be uh, a presentation of some underlying condition. So they brought in a a rheumatologist. So they kept uh, they kept running blood tests. They took two biopsies Mm -hmm. and um, the guy who at the blood lab who took my blood work. He said he'd never seen so many blood tests on one patient, and wow. yeah, I was just like, "Oh God, you I, I, don't, you don't want to hear that." And the rheumatologist, of
0: course not.
1: Yeah, the rheumatologist. After all that first round, where she had pretty much just checked off every box on what they wanted to test for, she looks at me and steps back, and she goes, "You're fascinating." And I'm just like, "I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that." She actually lives in a
0: not really a compliment. No,
1: no, but they they loved it. They uh. The rheumatologist and the dermatologist live in the same high-rise on Key Biscayne, uh, a couple floors apart. And for I think a couple weeks, two or three weeks towards the end, there I had them both on my cell phone. They would text me and call me. They would have dinner together and just speculate over what they thought it was. Um, I say they wanted to do another round of two more biopsies. But at that point, it had been uh, I think three months, and that was. That was easily the, the scariest and, and most frustrating part was just, just not knowing, not knowing what it was. And
0: yeah, I've talked to other guests on the podcast about that waiting game yeah. of dealing with symptoms and having these challenges and people not really knowing the answers. But most of all, you sitting around going like, when is someone going to figure out what's going on here?
1: Exactly, exactly in that period when I was texting, they actually, um, and calling them all every night and they pepper me with questions and, you know, all that good, all that good stuff, just trying to find out what was wrong. I, they had actually had to push an appointment back and that was the appointment where it was supposed to be like, they knew what was going wrong, which they didn't want to tell me over the phone for whatever reason. But I had to wait another two days and I was just, I, it, and I remember it just being like, so tomorrow I'm going to hundred percent. No. And, and, uh, the dermatologist Dr. Aber was like, "Yes tomorrow you will one hundred percent know and um yeah the rheumatologist told me it was cpan and then had to explain what that was uh, but it's a, it's basically a my immune system is um attacking the medium sized blood vessels in my body, not the <laughs> I don't know why specifically that size or you know why no small or no large, but that's just that's just what it is, but it's actually. A fairly lucky version because I have cutaneous polyarthritis nodosa. So that means it's confined to the skin. So even though the joint pain and the fatigue are part of it, for the most part, they've already, they've tested my brain, they tested all my organs, and they continue to test those to make sure it's not traveling to any of those other systems.
0: What was it like to receive that diagnosis and get that confirmation that there was a name to what it is that you were dealing with?
1: It was a relief. It was a relief. I, I have a little bit of, well, a little bit, I don't know. My first, my first wife, uh, who we were together from when I was 19 to when I was 36, uh, she got diagnosed with kidney disease when we were both 25. So I think everything is all of those questions that you sometimes have as someone getting a diagnosis like that, that means your whole life has to change. And so a lot of that fear I had already I'd dealt with 15 years before when, when we went through all that together. So I knew that once you have that diagnosis, you can definitely work with it. And even if it's a rare one, the doctors will they experiment, they try different things, and uh, you, you adjust. You've, it's kind of surprising what you can, what you can adjust to. You're stronger than you think you are. And, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a nice, it's a nice, um, even wake up call. I want to say that you can't take anything for granted, even your, even your health.
0: Absolutely. So in receiving that diagnosis, and now it's been about three years, how does having this illness and this diagnosis affect your day-to-day life? Obviously you're being tested, as you said, to make sure it's not spreading anywhere, But how is it affecting you day to day, and you know what are the current symptoms? Uh
1: Day to day, it's uh, I'm on um, I'm on methotrexate. It's been nice. I've been I've been feeling good, but uh, I (laughs) lately I've been in kind of flare up mode uh, a little bit. So there's more there's more pain. I think it's frustrating. It takes a takes a toll. You don't want to take it out on the people around you, and it's hard to express that to someone who's not. Dealing with it, and you don't want to whine about it because who would listen? No one likes a whiner. You want to be that, you know, that brave face—the person who's struggling bravely—but at the same time, you just want to oh, curl up in a corner.
0: Absolutely, yeah, that's got to be so frustrating. So, how do you deal with sharing what you're dealing with with your friends and family or coworkers, and how do you manage that?
1: I think I'm going to I'm, I'm going to share this obviously and say something along the lines of, I don't really talk about this, but, but here it is. And I've also, I've started writing about it as well. I've written an essay just about pain, and I'm probably going to write another one just about fatigue. My family, as far as talking to them, they I mean, it's in the rheumatoid family, the, uh, the CPAN and a lot of my aunts and uncles have, uh, rheumatoid problems as well. None of them have this, none of them have presented with lesions. And they all get different types of treatment. But as far as the, the fatigue and pain are the two ones that are kind of common to every single condition. Like one is like my dad can't um, generate tears or sweat. He has a uh, Sjogren's. But along with that is also the pain and fatigue. Um, so, you know, we commiserate about that. And there's just something about saying, I had a rough day to someone who knows exactly what that means. That's satisfying in a way that someone who's like, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's not, I mean, you know that they are sorry to hear that and they wish you weren't in pain and they wish they could do something. But that, uh, that extra layer of empathy is just, there's something about it.
0: Well, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, people don't know what you're going through. It's exactly why this podcast exists is people don't understand for sure what is, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, and you can talk to them and share that experience with them, but they still can't, Know what it's like to be in your body, yeah, so to have someone like your dad that can relate and understand what you're going through is so huge. Do you feel like you need to provide education to your friends or coworkers or other people outside of your dad to inform them on what it is that you're going through and how it may be affecting your life?
1: Not really um, sometimes I say if they want to google it you know, look up CPAN and make sure you type in vasculitis when you do. So it comes up if they're, if they're that curious, um, there's, there's, um, a blog post and I can't remember her name, but, uh, uh, a woman who wrote this, um, this post called the spoon theory. Uh,
0: I'm familiar. Yes. That is, uh,
1: that is just, that's a, just a genius shorthand. I love that essay. And then Can you
0: explain sure a little right. bit about what it is and then we'll link it in the show notes?
1: Oh, for sure. I actually I was reading Jenny Lawson's Furiously Happy and she she references love it. it. Yeah.
0: Hoping to get her on the podcast. Jenny, if oh. you're listening. Thank <laughs> you.
1: So nice. Next time she comes down, we'll, you know, I will definitely
0: yes.
1: I'll name drop you.
0: Thank you. Um but yeah. So the spoon theory. Yeah.
1: The the woman goes out to dinner and she's with a friend and she's just trying to explain what having a chronic illness is like, I believe, I believe she has lupus. Am I? Yes. Okay. And, and trying to explain it, she gathers up all the spoons from the nearby tables and, uh, hands them to her friend. And she's like, these are your spoons. And, uh, friends kind of amused by the whole thing. Like I, you know, okay, if you say so. And so as she, she walks her friend, the woman with lupus walks her friend through her day and explains that everything she does Costs her a spoon. You know, the friend is like, oh, well, I roll out of bed, I take a shower, I get ready for work. And the friend is like, okay, let's let's slow that down. If you plan on washing your hair in the shower or shaving your legs in the shower, that's a second spoon. If you plan on cooking a meal as opposed to having something pre-packaged, that's another spoon. So think about whether you want your morning to cost you one spoon or three spoons. And you don't, you know, the woman's like, I only have 12 spoons. How am I going to do this? And it's, it's a brilliant essay and it, it was just a great moment for them. And she was great for sharing that because it's, it really is a good metaphor for how you feel. And it also, it helped me a lot just to, uh, to forgive myself. Like if I don't, if I don't have it that day and I don't, and and, and no matter what this wonderful activity is, that's planned, I can, I can force myself to go and know that I'm going to be standing painfully in the corner, like gritting my teeth and getting through it. I'm not going to be myself, or I can just realize that that's going to cost me more than I more than I have left, and I and I can't do it. And you have to you have to forgive yourself for things like that. That you're you're so I guess that's it helps you with that adjustment as far as rearranging how you're living your life just to accommodate your your body's limitations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I just Googled it. It's The Spoon Theory by Christine Miserandino. I may be butchering that last name, but we'll be sure to link it in the show notes. I remember reading about it and just finding the concept so fascinating to be able to explain to a quote unquote outsider Mm. what it's like to live with an invisible illness. And it sounds like something that you read that you really resonated with and went like, oh, yes, this is exactly how I feel. Yes, This is how I can help other people understand this. Yes, very much so. So. You mentioned, you know, the pain concept that you deal with on what sounds like a pretty day-to-day basis. We got recording a little bit late today because you were what it sounds like carrying a bunch of boxes Mm -hmm. of books. So how does your illness affect your work? Does it? Do your coworkers or boss know what you're living with? And does it change things? They
1: do. Uh, Oh, wow. Um, Well, I have have a full-time job, (laughs) obviously. And, uh, when I was first diagnosed, I also order, um, we have Miami book fair coming up in November. We have it every November, uh, five to 600 authors that all come within the space of a week. And I also order all the books for that. And that at one time was a position where they, that they contracted out. They would hire someone to just, uh, place those orders just to be the the person making sure that every author present had a book that they could present while they were there. And it was a it was a limited contract, six or eight weeks, something like that. So when I was healthy, I would just work crazy insane hours. It would just be like, oh the schedule's done. Okay. Well I guess November I would just, you know, wake up while the sun was still down and be working when the sun went down. And it was it was ridiculous. And after the diagnosis. And at the time I was very, very, very fatigued and very run down. And I just, I couldn't conceive of how I would do it. I approached my boss and just said, I can't, yeah, there's no, I just flat out told him I was not doing it this year. And because he had, uh, he had come to rely on me in that capacity. I had, uh, since I took over was the first time, if I can brag a little bit, it was the first time that they hadn't had a miss that all of their five to 600 authors, like they didn't, none of them fell through the cracks. So he really wanted me to to keep doing it. So he let me sit with that for a weekend, like feeling like, Oh good. He took it and was like, all right, you don't have to do it. Blah, blah, blah. So then that Monday he was like, so you're not saying you can't do it. You're saying we have to change the way we're doing it. I said, you know, if you say so, but he started giving me the list, uh, I'm, I've been working on the book fair now for about a month and a half, because um, they started giving me the list of authors as they were coming in. And he also got me an assistant. Uh, so it's not like I have to worry about putting in 70, 80, 90 hour weeks. So that was one accommodation. Um, as far as the physicality of it goes, exercise is so important in fighting the pain and fatigue that I, I don't, the only other job I would get would be like a stevedore. Like I can't imagine another job that would keep me as active as this one does. But the the exercise I'm down about 60 pounds from that 253, uh, point back in 2012, I guess was my highest point.
0: That's amazing. Uh,
1: thank you. <laughs> uh,
0: Definitely an accomplishment. I think the big thing that you're talking about that's so important is I think about when people are in the hospital, doctors and hospital staff are so adamant about getting people out of the hospital and moving Mm, and making sure you're not just laying in a bed all day, every day. And I think there's such value in that to what you're talking about of, you know, you can give in to your illness and you can just sort of lay around from a mental standpoint and a physical standpoint Mm. of just dwelling on it and being miserable. But what you're saying is you're taking into account the value of physical activity, whatever that looks like, and see what works best for you that makes you feel your best. That's so, so, so huge. Um, I want to go back to the writing concept because I think it's a theme here. And obviously, you work at Books and Books, and you're writing a lot. In being surrounded by books all day and seeing how other people are writing, do you have specific goals for your writing as it relates to your illness, are you looking to do something with it? Uh, obviously, there's something cathartic about writing about your health, especially when you're not, you know, shouting from the rooftops and some extremely extroverted person telling everyone what you're living with. But what is it that writing's doing for you, and what kind of goals do you have with it?
1: Um, as far as writing about the uh, the illness, I want to get those essays together and polished. I'll probably workshop them in the uh, the writing class radio. And, um, yeah, I mean, I would like to see them published online and because the the spoon theory really, really hit home with me and it would be nice if something that I, uh, my sharing my experience of this might help someone else try to cope with their own, their own struggles. I mean, my heart is really in, in fiction. As far as, as far as that goes, uh, I am in, I'm in talks with an agent and, we're looking to get uh, a collection, and um, I'm also working on my my novel. So we're I'm looking to shop that around. Hopefully, the end of this year, beginning of next year. That's all fiction. That's
0: exciting. Yeah. Fingers crossed for you. Yeah,
1: it's it's good.
0: So thank you so much, Aaron, for getting out of your introverted shell <laughs> and amongst the books yeah. and for being willing to have this conversation with me. Tell us where people can find you, your writing. Obviously, listen to the recordings where you're on Writing Class Radio and learn more about you.
1: Oh, uh, well, I have a blog. Uh, it's called Sweet with Fall and Fish because I wanted something that was impossible to find and hard to remember
0: just like your illness. Yep.
1: <laughs> so, I I had a I had a blog get stolen from uh from it. So, I haven't I don't update it as regularly as I should. But that's one of the things that I'm going to start doing is I'm going to do reviews and then I'm going to start a newsletter that's going to be all the stuff that I used to write about on the blog, but it'll just be for the people who are signed up for the newsletter. This is true.
0: Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me and look forward to reading more of your pieces about your health.
1: Thank you. Thanks for starting this podcast this is uh this is i mean important i don't want to inflate it but it is it's very important i think it's a necessary thing you're doing
0: thank you so much thanks for tuning into made visible we hope you learned about something new today if you enjoyed this episode please take a few minutes to subscribe rate and review the podcast on itunes we can't do this without your support Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.